Well, good morning. It's wonderful to see you. Colossians chapter 3 is where we are at. Colossians chapter 3, and in just a minute, I'm going to begin reading from verse 22 to the end of the chapter, and the first verse of chapter 4. I'm also going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 to the end of that chapter, and I think as I read that, I will understand why I have chosen that text as well. I do hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving, and I know we have much to be thankful for, and I'm, I'm sure that you expressed that in many different ways over these past few days. Let's hear the word of the Lord, verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly master in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And then from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Now let's bow together and pray and ask for our needed help. Now, Father, as we come to your throne of grace, we want to tell you again publicly how grateful we are for the good things that you have given us over these past few days. Food, the companionship, uh, family and friends, and these are graces that, um, in my mind, personally, I don't think I deserve, but I am grateful, God, that you give them to us. Now we would ask, as we turn to this passage that has so much to say about how we are to serve you in the public square, that you will teach us from it. Teach us of the practicality of it, the necessity, what it means to us as a Christian employee or a Christian employer, and what it will mean for us as we stand before your glorious throne and give an account for our employment or for those we employed. So Father, we would ask that you will grant to us clarity in everything, and humility in order that we might be teachable and honest in this so that your truth may furnish our minds and be the very framework of our lives as we continue on in those lives that you've given us until you return or until you call us home. Now, Father, we need everything and we ask for it now for Jesus' sake. Amen. It is an inescapable truth throughout the whole of the New Testament, that every Christian's life purpose in all things is to bring glory to God. 
And because that is true, no Christian at any age or any stage of their life, no Christian in any certain location or in any kind of situation in their earthly pilgrimage is exempt from this good and glad and happy and frankly, as we think about these things, this privileged task. First question of the shorter catechism is absolutely correct. What is the chief end of man and what is the chief end of woman? Why are we here? What is the reason for our existence? Man's chief end. Women's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Therefore, as we think about these things, everything that we say, everything that we do, all our submissions to God, all our relationships, all the ways that we use our given time, given energy, our talents, our resources, all our celebrations, and in the opportunities that we have been granted, everything is hemmed in and so has to be ordered in such a way that brings attention to that brings glory to and speaks to the reality and the authority of God Almighty. Now, as Jesus walked this earth, he did not live to please himself. Pleasing God in everything was the great concern of Christ, and pleasing God in everything is to be the Christian's great goal. Subsequently then, as you look at chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4, all of chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4, Paul has been providing not recommendations. These are not recommendations. These are God-given instructions on what it means to glorify God in the place and the life that He has given us. This is, if you would, normal Christian living. This is in the mind of God, normal Christian living. Now, as you think about normal Christian living, what a novel idea that is. I mean, what are the things that we hear in our time? Go big or go home. Paul says, not so fast. It is in how we conduct ourselves in our daily duties and our daily routines and our daily relationships which Christ rule and reign supremely over. That is what reveals the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis in a note said this, the whole lesson of my life has been that no methods of stimulation are of any lasting value. They are indeed like drugs. A stronger dose is needed each time, and soon no possible dose is effective at all. We must not bother about thrills at all. Do the present duty, bear the present pain, and enjoy the present pleasure. Put right out of your head the idea that there are fancy ways of saying Christians are to read what Christ says and do it as a person might read Plato and try to carry it out. This is more than that. This means a real person, Christ, is doing real things to you. This is a living man who is God, killing our old self and replacing it with himself, turning you and I into a new little Christ. And loved ones, that is normal Christian living as the Bible explains it. It's it's more than enough. Chapter 3 and verse 4 of chapter, verse 1 of chapter 4 is more than enough to shine the light on the person of Christ. Do those things, do those normal Christian things, and I guarantee you that one, you'll find no greater adventure, and two, I can guarantee you that you will shine the light on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we've been saying that for weeks. This is the power of the gospel. The power of Christ in every genuine believer. The power of Christ unfolding in every genuine believer. This is where Christ will take you. So as you look at your Bible, and I hope that your Bible is open, you can look at verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3, 
And you can see that Paul has dealt with the gospel and the Christian's relationship with Christ. And then, verses 9 through 17, Paul has dealt with the gospel and the Christian's relationship to the local church. And then, as we've been working through the last few weeks, verses 18 to 21, he deals with the gospel and the Christian's marital and family relationships. And here we are, uh, less than 24 hours back to our work week, verse 22 of chapter 3, Paul now deals with the gospel and the Christian's relationship with their and in their daily work. So, so what we find is immediately genuine faith makes a revolutionary change. Genuine faith, if you would, is not like an umbrella that you keep by the box. You take it out when you need it. You keep it there when you don't need it. That's not Christianity. Genuine Christianity, faith in Christ, changes the fundamental direction of our lives always. So as you think about, if you would, the, within the framework of the home, being a Christian makes us different. A different dad, a different husband, because Jesus Christ is Lord. A different mom, a different wife, because Jesus Christ is Lord. Even a different child, because Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what Paul is saying is, and what is true in the privacy of our own homes, is to be equally true now in the public square of our daily employment. So that necessary question, how am I to glorify God in the workplace, it is not left up to us to answer on our own. It's not even left up to the circumstances that we find ourselves in those things. No, the answer to how am I to glorify God in the workplace is given an exact answer by God through the pen of Paul. And so when you come to these verses, I would have been surprised if you were not shocked to see that Paul does not give a specific plan of how to get rid of slavery in the Roman Empire. In these verses, he's not calling for open revolt. No, he's actually working within the system of slavery at that time. Now, as you think about those things, and we have to think about those things, to that same end, as Jesus Christ walked this earth, he had no direct statements concerning the taking down of slavery in the Roman Empire. Now, many have expressed feelings ranging from uncertainty to embarrassment to plain old disappointment that the New Testament appears to be content, as you read it here in other places, appears to be content with the status quo of slavery as it was understood in the empire. But to say that is to misunderstand the power of the gospel, and it is to misunderstand the priority of the gospel. The power of the gospel is plain. Gospel does change people. It is God's power. History reveals this. And history also reveals that change people One individual change can bring about monumental change in the places that God has put them and, if you would, the societies that God has put them. That's the power of the gospel. Please don't lose confidence in that ever, ever. And the priority of the gospel is that it takes first place over everything in every age at all time, especially then in our day-to-day existence. Now, Paul had other things to say about slavery, and and no one can doubt the effect that the gospel had on Roman society when it came to slave-master relationship. Point of fact, that at the time of Jesus, there were more slaves being freed than any other time in the Roman Empire. And so then you would have to think about the church. Think of the first century church. You'd have a slave and a master who would be treated as, as one, as equal in the church. And typically... No surprise here, typically 
slaves were converted before masters. That's why I read to you out of 1 Corinthians 1. And so what you could very well have in the first century church, you could have a slave as an overseer leading the church and a master of that slave as a member having to fall into submission to the leadership of his slave in Christ's church. In fact, Paul will send his slave, chapter 4, verse 9 of Colossians, by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus is part of the team to carry this letter to the Christians in Colossae, a team that also has another letter in their little portfolio. It's the letter of Philemon, to Philemon. And Philemon is Onesimus' master. And in that letter, Paul says, do not treat him as your slave. Philemon, don't treat Onesimus as your slave, but welcome him as your brother, just like you would me. In other words, set him free. Set him free, something which any master could have easily done. So as you think about these things and you get the whole priority of the gospel, this is high, patient intellect. How do you end slavery? How do you cut up slavery? You cut it by its roots, one by one, and the heart's and the souls of man. Does it take too long, or did it take too long? Absolutely, we understand that. But it was rid of nonetheless, which is why the southern preacher of the 18th and 19th century had no business, in America had no business to build a case from the Bible why they could justify slavery from the Bible. The slave system of the first century Rome was at its best an economic feeder system into either Roman citizenship or Roman stabilization of its economy. Everyone benefited from that. Slavery, in most cases, wasn't permanent. They were headed towards citizenship, or emancipation, or adoption by the family they served. Now, don't get me wrong. It was still slavery. It was still wrong. Paul would tell slaves, if you can get out, get out. And again, at the time of Augustus Caesar, he had to actually make laws that slowed down the freeing of slaves because so many slaves were being freed. So in the Roman world, slavery was more a process, if you would, than a permanent condition. However, slavery in America was a brutal system. It was savage. It was wrong. And it could not be justified from the Scriptures. So as we think about modern organized religions, we move ourselves now to the 21st century, and we see how modern organized religion approaches these verses how Jesus and Paul came to these issues, what you see then is a far different picture. What you see in organized religion typically moving in the West in three fronts. Number one, organized religion on the whole is no longer convinced that Jesus Christ is God's one and only Son who came to die for sin. Therefore, their commitment to the gospel is to its exclusivity is essentially non-existent. Or at worst, it takes a back seat to whatever the organization wants to put forward. And so the result of that, secondly, is that the power to change human beings is no longer believed in the gospel, but in our ability to organize. So let's get as many people as we can to say this is right, and let's go there. And so let's confront humanity, not with the gospel, but let's confront them in the realm of economic equality. And then let's confront them in the realm of politics. And each time, they're making statements, because they have to, per their political persuasions. But organized religion in this realm is not, they are not qualified economists, and they're not qualified, if you would, politicians. They can no more go about economics or politics than the Pope of another age could correct Galileo on physics. And if you remember from your history books, Galileo was completely right about what he was trying to do by way of physics 
and the Pope was completely wrong. So when they do that, move this again to the 21st century, the 20th century, on one hand, we're presented with a liberation theology or social gospel that came out of the 60s and 70s. And on the other hand, the right-sided conservative theology, which has tried to unite theology with only conservative politics, which has taken place in the past 30 years. Both are not the gospel. Both save no one. And the Bible speaks directly and exactly to neither, and rightly so. So someone once said, under communism, we find man exploiting his fellow man, and under capitalism, we find exactly the same thing in reverse. And to a degree, in my mind, this is true, because in both, you have fallen men and women at the helm. So the challenge of the church is not to endorse a certain economic theory, It's not to endorse a certain political party. The real challenge, and think with me, is to take the gospel and make it a part of all that we say and all that we do as we live in these given days and see that gospel, the power of God, Romans 1, 16 through 18, the power of God to transform lives and then societies. This is God's given way from the scriptures in a fallen world because what we find is that nothing stops the advancing of the gospel except Gospel silence. Paul in prison. The gospel is advanced. People dying for the sake of the gospel. The gospel is advanced. Stoning Christian leaders. The gospel is advanced. Kicking Christians out of whole communities. The gospel is advanced. Christian slaves working for their masters as if they were working for Christ. The gospel is advanced. Christian masters providing what is right and fair then the gospel is advanced. And when we understand this, then we see the revolutionary impact the genuine gospel makes on everything. Not chiefly from the top down, but chiefly from the bottom up. And not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And loved ones, that is the example of Christ, our example in everything. And we see it clearly in the pages of the Bible. And This is the example of Paul as he lays down these principles for Christian slaves. Therefore, verse 22 and following, Paul does not encourage open revolt. He doesn't encourage organization to put to an end, but rather he calls for obedience. Because again, it's very interesting that the Apostle Paul did not argue against that system of his day. The Apostle Paul had many opportunities to stand up and cry out against all of the political and economic wrongs of his day. And believe me, there were plenty. But you check the scriptures. Every time Paul was put in jail, every time he was beaten, every time he was threatened with his life, every time he was running for his life, it was because of one thing. And what was that one thing? The preaching of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the cross, the preaching of Christ, crucified, buried, risen, ascended, and returning, displaying the reality of Jesus Christ's kingship over all things, which the end of history will make absolutely clear forever. And that, loved ones, is the revolutionary impact of the gospel. He goes into Corinth and says, I determined to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's the only thing that you heard from my lips over and over and over again in many different ways. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why did Paul do that? Because the way to change a society is to change the individual. And the way to change the individual is the preaching of Christ preaching of Christ and the living out of Christ in our day-to-day existence. 
that when organized religion sacrifices culture for the gospel, it goes for makeovers, temporary makeovers, and not eternal transformations. And to quote James Denny, the saving of one soul from hell is an event of more importance than a saving a whole village from temporary evil. So that when Paul calls for then here, and essentially, as we think about these principles for us in 21st century, he's teaching us about employee-employer relationships. And one last thing before we actually get to these verses. Um, please remember that work is, a ne- is not a necessary evil. You know, work has fallen on hard, hard times, and almost nobody likes it. Work did not come as a result of the fall. Work was part and parcel of God's life and God's paradise before the fall. Work does not stink, okay? So many, again, view work as neg- negative. It's holding us back from, from the weekend. It's holding us back from play. It's holding us back from, from the, the good life that we just can't wait to get to. Loved ones, clearly established in your mind that work is God's idea. God pioneered work. God, if you would, was the first worker. He was the creator. He planned. He organized. He was methodical. He was creative. And he worked with absolute perfection. And God's work, Genesis 1 at the end there, brings him pleasure. He looked over all of creation and said, my work is good. So work is God's idea. And and with God, with this desire to work then, he's made us in his image. He made us to work as well. Moreover, he intended us to look after his creation, and he intended that our work was to be an expression of our obedience to him as we seek to bring glory to God in our service of work. Because what we're going to learn here is that work is something the Christian ultimately does for God. Work is something that the Christian ultimately does for God. That takes us to our first point. Number one, you can see it there in the back of your worship folder, in all things. In all things. Well, the moral dilemma then for the Christian slave face was exactly the same or not much different than the moral dilemma that the modern Christian employee faces. Okay, I have two bosses. How am I to serve my two masters? How am, how am I to serve my earthly boss? And how am I to serve my heavenly boss? And Paul writes again with succinct clarity, verse 22, obey your earthly masters in everything. So obey them not only in the work that we like to do, but equally in the work that we do not like to do. And some of you are thinking, and rightly so, does this mean that we are to obey them when they ask us to do something contrary to God's law or contrary to man's law? And of course, I suspect you know the answer, no, of course not. Yes, we may have to leave our jobs when that happens. We might even have to turn our bosses in if that happens. But generally speaking, Christian employees are to be obedient employees. They are to be the best employees. So Christian employees, in all things, obey your bosses. Point number two then, obey them in a certain kind of way. That's verse 22b. Again, if your Bible's open, you can see it there. Not only when their eye is on you and, when they're, and, to, and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now we understand this. It goes without saying that, that some work hard only at times, certain times, to attract favor or to avoid punishment. And so the whole system there, they work it for themselves. How can I get the most out of doing the least? How can I avoid these things? And how can I escape that? How can I get, my eyes of the, get the eyes of my boss on me, advance my cause, and still have to do very little in the whole program of work? 
What is the very least I can do? Or what can I do by way of eye service to advance my career? What is that? Well, that's trying to appear terrific at certain times, still get paid, and advance your cause. And I think all of us understand that we have the potential to do this in us. When our bosses are around, work hard to win their favor. When they are not around, we turn it down. Of course, when we're working hard in front of them, can we, can we hide our ill will? Of course we can. Can we hide our laziness? Of course we can. Which is why, jumping ahead a bit, Paul says, your boss, the one you are serving, verse 24b, is actually Jesus Christ. The Lord Christ, Master Christ, that's who you are serving. So because of this, the Christian employee should know none of these kind of wicked games that that people play. Because the Christian employee is motivated, verse 22b, do you see it there? Motivated by a sincere heart and a reverence for the Lord. This is absolutely wonderful. A sincerity of heart is simply this, There's, there's no pretense in your work. You're not working for promotion ultimately. You're not working for advancement ultimately. You're simply a purist. That's the nature of that word sincere that Paul uses. It it means literally without wax. So in the ancient world, pottery that had a crack in them was cheaply filled by wax. Then it was whitewashed over. And then the hope was that you could cover up the defective product by your little little scheme there. And Paul says, don't don't do that. Don't whitewash your work. Let there be a single-minded devotion to the task at hand with a heart that has a mindset that is clear on why you are doing what you are doing and who you are ultimately doing it for. Because verse 23 makes it clear, they are, you are, employees are working for Christ. So that every job's value is not what it will bring to you, but how it will glorify Christ through you. Now, we understand that there's wonderful benefits of doing good work and we embrace that. But ultimately, we work hard in our employment Because Jesus Christ is Lord. A sincerity of heart and a reverence for the Lord. That's simple, right? The task belongs ultimately to Jesus. Jesus is our boss. How the Christian does their work is what they think of Christ. How the Christian does their work is what they think of Christ. And in verse 23, with all your heart, your whole person is plunged into the task. You're not holding anything back. Your whole self, animated, dynamic for the task so that the slave in century one and the employee in century 21 is simply doing their work in tremendous fashion because ultimately their employee is employer excuse me is Jesus Christ now if you're honest can you see how that will change everything about how we the Christian goes to work I mean will that not get you out of bed will that not make you say okay today is my day to serve Christ at my employment This is an evangelistic mechanism to declare Jesus Christ is Lord. So there's no clock watching. There's no people watching. There's no mind games. There's no pretend excuses. There's no agitation about advancement. There's not even stress about employment. I mean, not here. It's just good, clean work. We do our best for Jesus Christ in all our given tasks. We're not working just for a quiet life. We're not working just to please the employer or out of fear of the employer, for that matter. 
No, we work as an expression of a new loyalty. Something big has happened to me. When I gave my life to Jesus Christ, there's a new allegiance now. There's a big picture here that I need to embrace. Work hard now as an expression of our worship for God. Work hard now because this is another expression of the radical difference of being a Christian or becoming a Christian makes. And we work hard now to show what we think of Jesus Christ. We now have as the privileged preoccupation of pleasing Jesus Christ in everything, even in the dailiness of our duties at work. Charles Spurgeon told the story of receiving an application from a maid who wanted to become a member of their church. He asked her in the interview with the other elders along with him, he said, is there any evidence that you have truly repented of your sins? And the maid, she answers quick as a wink, yes, sir, ever since I became a Christian, I no longer sweep the dirt under the rug of the homes where I am employed. Right? Spurgeon turned to the other elders immediately and he said, It is enough. We will receive her. One of my personal heroes, Ronald Reagan, he always wore his suit coat while he was working in the Oval Office, no matter what time of day, no matter what day it was. He wore a suit coat as an expression that he understood that one, it was for it was the people's house. And so he was working for the people. He was on point for the people, and then secondly, he understood that he was working ultimately then for Jesus Christ, and that's why he went into that context with a certain way of saying, this is important. The people matter, but Jesus Christ matters. Says William Barclay, the conviction of a Christian worker is that every single piece of work produced must be good enough to show God. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, think about it. Every single piece of work produced must be good enough to show God. I mean, doesn't that make you want to be dynamic for Jesus and just those normal Tuesdays and those normal Mondays and Thursdays? So as we think about this idea of secular and sacred in the workplace, there, for the Christian, there is no difference between secular and sacred. Everything is sacred. All our work is done for Christ. All our work is done for Christ or it's done for some other reason. It's done for some other reason. Employers may control your day, but they can't control your vision. They can't control your motivation. Why it is you do what you do and who it is that you do it for. Which takes us then to our third point, right? Point number one, Christians, obey your bosses in all things. Point two, Christians, in a certain way, obey them, reverence. Reverence for the Lord and with single-minded devotion for the text. Just purity. I'm doing great work for Jesus. Incidentally, and in passing, if you are the kind of Christian worker who constantly complains about your job, about your bosses, maybe we have forgotten who ultimately our boss is. Jesus Christ. Which takes us to our third point, for a certain reason. Do these things for a certain reason. Work this way, why? Verse 24, because you will receive an inheritance from the Lord. So immediately the worker is set free from the concern of, of work without proper reward. We understand that. I mean, that's, that's probably most employees' biggest complaint. Nobody, nobody likes me here. Nobody sees how hard I'm working. I, they can't understand and they don't give me my give and do. Now, the one thing in the ancient world that a slave could never do in law was inherit anything. The other thing, they couldn't take any action to, the right, to right the wrongs that were done to them. They couldn't seek out justice. 
And that was hard. But in God's economy, Paul writes, today's exploitation, it is not the final story. Today's mistreatment is not the final story. We can be sure God will have the final word. So no one on either side, employer, employee, no one is ultimately going to get away with anything. Which means the good and the true and the right will have the final word. And can you imagine, I mean, just not for us, but can you imagine what good news it would have been to the slave? Patience. Patience, but on that last day, incredible things are going to happen forever. Paul writes, there's a new world coming. There's a new prospect coming, and it's going to be forever. Yes, in this world now, there's power plays, unfortunately. There's tricky people. Yes, they are. They're idle threats. Yes, we feel them. They all may come, but they all will be judged, and they all will end. The reason we work so well now, no matter what, is for Jesus Christ. Because there is an inheritance kept for us. Verse 25, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. And there is no favoritism. That's the second part of that equation. Anyone, slave or master, employer, employee. It's a mute point. Who's worse, the the one who holds back their labor or, or the other who holds back a proper reward? Both the same. F.F. Bruce says, It may seem difficult to understand how one who by grace is blessed with God's salvation in Christ may yet before the divine tribunal receive again the wrong that he has done. But it is in accordance with the teaching of Scripture, the parables of Jesus throughout, that the judgment should begin at the house of God. And even if the tribunal be a domestic one for members of the family of God, it is nonetheless a solemn reality. So this judgment is not an in and out of heaven judgment. But this is a judgment nonetheless. The worker will receive an inheritance from Christ for that which is right. The worker and the master will receive a judgment from Christ for that which is wrong. In other words, no good deed ever gets overlooked. And every bad deed will be judged. Now can you see how that will and how that did change everything. And can you see how, how Paul's final exhortation, chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, provide for your slaves what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. I mean, it couldn't, couldn't be any more simpler, right? You bosses, remember, you have a boss as well. And you're going to have to answer to that boss. So you may fancy yourself on being a boss. But in Christ... In the church, you yourself are a slave of the one master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will be well for you to remember that. This is what it means, chapter 3, verse 2, to set your mind on things above. There's a greater accountability. There's a greater answerability, and it's coming. The Christian master would have to read this and would have to say to himself, the slaves are my equal, and they are forgiven, and they are entitled to be provided what is right and fair and just. And surely a first century master who, who's not a Christian would be perplexed. Gospel privileges here, right? Gospel advancing. What are you doing? Well, let me tell you what has happened to me since Jesus Christ became my Savior and my Lord. A whole new reality is set before me. And so that reality eventually would bring slavery to an end. Too long? Absolutely. We understand that. 
but put it to an end nonetheless. So if you're a modern boss, some of the questions that you might want to ask yourself are these. Do you care about your workers? Do you pay them fairly and promptly for their work? Do you think about their families as you would think about your own family? Do you say to your employees, I can't afford to pay you X only so you can have a few homes and, and more and more of plenty of everything that you already have at the expense of low wages and no benefits, things that are just and fair. Here's the warning. The God of Amos, the God of Nehemiah, the living God, the only judge will judge. You see, loved ones, this is what it means to be a Christian. Everything changes. Christ transforms everything, even our work, even the things that we would consider mundane. Christ transforms everything because we've been saying over and over again in Colossians, Jesus Christ is all that matters. Jesus Christ is all that matters. Let's bow together. If those who will be serving in communion would they, if he would please just come forward and let's bow as we prepare for our Lord's table. Father, as we think about what we've heard, we see very clearly that Christianity is not a mechanism to get what we want, but it is a mechanism to declare Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is Savior and Lord and that he matters most. So we need grace to be a wonderful employee. And those of us who need it, ask for it now. And we need grace to be a wonderful employer. And for those of us who need it, we ask for it now. Oh, Father, help us as we go to your table. For Jesus' sake, amen.